This is an audio discussion hosted by the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion. I'm Jessica Hughes and I'm joined today by my Open University colleagues, Dr Angeliki Limburapulu from the Department of Art History and Dr Jan Hayward from the Department of Classical Studies. And we're very pleased to have Dr Jodie Cundy with us from the University of Oxford to talk about the theme of virtual collections. And we're going to be focusing initially on lists of votives and relics that we find in ancient Greek texts. Jodie, your work focuses on the second century Greek writer Pausanias and his guide to Greece, the Periegesis Helados. Now, he physically goes round Greek sanctuaries and records objects that were found there. And these are both physical dedications that he sees there himself, but also legendary objects associated with that place. So can you perhaps start by giving us an example of how and why he does this? Um, yeah, there are two examples that come to mind. Um, and one um, is from the description of the Temple of Pathos, Persuasion, um, in Sicyon. And when he actually goes to describe this space, he actually will tell you about Pretus, the heroic founder of the temple, and tell you this is the place where his daughters were cured of madness. And he'll talk about Meleager dedicating the spear with which he killed the Caledonian boar. And you get these kinds of details, and then that the temple burned down. So he's not seeing the spear. He's not seeing these heroic relics, but he's going to tell you about them, even as he says, well, now there's a new temple with a new founder. And so in that, he's using uh, his description of the temple and its contents to make the past present and to evoke the heroic aspect of, uh, of worship there. And he does the same thing with the temple of Athena Elia at Tegea, in which we have more parts of the Caledonian boar. So we're told that the cult statue itself was taken away to Rome, along with the tusks of the Caledonian boar, and he gives us a description of those objects. And so we understand they belong to the uh, material collection of Tegea, even though they're no longer materially present there. And then he'll go on to describe what is at the temple. And what we find is that we have actually the hide of the Caledonian boar, although he says it's pretty worse, worse for the wear. And we also find that there are uh, these fetters associated with the very famous instance from Greek historiography in which the Spartans had misunderstood um, an oracle and attacked their neighbors and thinking that they were going to win and instead found themselves enslaved and wearing the very chains they brought with them to enslave the Tejans. Those are hung up in the temple. And then we have a few other objects that connote more of the heroic past. And so when you read the description of the temple of Athena Elia at Tejia, you can bring all of these objects together, creating a virtual collection that attests to the very specific and special nature of this place that you really couldn't see if you were just going to go and visit the temple, right? So in some ways, this virtual collection communicates the numinosity of the place better than actual pilgrimage. Now, Jan, you're working on a book about different sources used by Herodotus. Does he create similar virtual collections to those that Jodie's identified in Pausanias? Yes. <laughs> um, one striking instance that I've been thinking about is in the first book of Herodotus's histories, where he gives us a very complex account of the Lydian king Croesus. 
so he's going back in time. Uh, he's actually giving an account of the history of the Persian Wars, but here he's going further back and telling us about Croesus. So uh, I, I'll try and summarise this because it's a very complex account, but by the time we get to Croesus, we've already sort of learned that he's ill-fated and that he is going to be the last uh, of his... Uh, he's going to be the last ruler of the Lydians. And part of that account, uh, a, a substantial part of the account, is about oracles. And Croesus sends his emissaries to Delphi to find out whether or not he should attack Cyrus, this uh, pretender Persian uh, leader. And we, as part of his, as part of this strategy of propitiating the god at Delphi, Croesus sends an extravagant number of items, dedications to the god. So uh, I'll try not to read this out too much, but we, uh, because it's so detailed and extensive, but we hear about um, golden cups, uh, a golden couch of enormous weight in gold, um, a, a, a five and a half feet golden statue of a woman, and so it continues. So we get this very detailed, highly elaborate collection of items that become associated with Croesus in relation to him propitiating the god in the hope that Delphi will say yes go ahead attack Cyrus you will be successful or at least that's the account that we get from Herodotus what's difficult to say of course about all of this is how much the narrative we're given relates to the reality of those real objects that Herodotus may or may not have been seeing. Um, but it's important that in his account, these objects all become closely associated with this point of the Croesus narrative. Uh, and I hope I'm not giving the game away here, but actually, you know, Herodotus' account is really, it's all headed towards the great downfall of Croesus. And actually, this virtual collection, I think, is part of that narrative. The fact that he gives in such luxurious, uh, magnificent amounts of stuff, I think is coded and, uh, if somewhat elusive, and that Herodotus is signalling to his reader through this impressive collection of items that something is not right about this. There's something, uh, too, there's something just too much uh, in the wealth of the stuff being dedicated. So the virtual collection has an important narrative strategy for what's coming and Croesus's downfall, I think. Angeliki, I think you've brought along a text from the Middle Ages that includes a comparable sort of inventory or virtual collection of sacred objects from a particular site. Can you tell us about this author and his motives? Right, so we have a guy named Gunther of Perry, spelled P-A-I-R-I-S, so it's not Paris, it's actually of Perry in the Cistercian Alsatian Abbey of Perry. Now, Gunther was born uh, around 1150 and basically lived till about 1210. Now, he wrote this rather famous account called Historia Constantinopolitana, which means the history of Constantinople, where he narrates uh, his adventures of his abbot uh, Martin of Perry, 
who was at Constantinople shortly after the fall of Constantinople to the troops of the Fourth Crusade in 1204 and its savage looting. So basically, Gunther, he's not an eyewitness, he, he stayed in, in Perry, but his abbot Martin went there and came back with lots and lots and lots of relics from um, the Church of Christ Pantocrator in Constantinople. Now, let me just tell you, the Church of Christ Pantocrator, for those of you who don't know it, know it shame on you, because it's a great, marvelous, uh, was a great, marvelous church in Constantinople. It was founded by the Emperor John II Komnenos, who ran between 1118 and 1143, and it was probably the most important church in medieval times of, uh, a, a, for hosting relics. It had everything you can think of from the crown of thorns, uh, the slab where Christ's body was laid uh, during the lamentation, uh, the virgin's girdle, you name it. It had every single important relic for uh, Christianity. So, when the crusaders went into Constantinople, they looted everything. The religious or pious pillaging took place mostly in these sort of churches. So Martin of Perry, uh, who apparently felt really bad, according to Gunther, he felt really bad for doing that, but he had to do it because it was God's um, plan for all these objects to go back to Perry and basically protect the people of Perry. And that's what we have. We have basically a, an account of all these objects, lovely relics, countless relics, coming back from Constantinople to Perry, being in the, in the Abbey and uh, protecting the people of the city. Can you tell us some of the objects that are recorded in this inventory? Yes, he basically, Historia Constantinopolitana is quite a long text and just to add, it's written in Latin obviously because Gunther was German. Uh, and at chapter 24, actually chapter 24 is in fact an inventory because uh, he actually says in chapter 24, in order to encourage a firmer belief in them, in our readers, we have decided to list some of them by name. Okay, basically, he, his inventory is an authentication that these relics came from Constantinople here to protect you. And you should basically, he tells his reader, you should know what they are because they're the real thing. And he starts by saying, the first truly unique and by all means most worthy of every veneration is a trace of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for the redemption of the entire human race. That is basically, that comes first in the list. The second most important, according to him, it's of course wood from Christ's cross. The third is not inconsiderable piece of St. John, the forenarn of the Lord. And the fourth, rather spookily, the arm of St. James the Apostle. And then, of course, he goes on and on and on. In, 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 and also, I have to say that a lot of stones featuring in this account of his. So we have a relic from the stone rolled away. It means the stone that it, it was on Christ's tomb and rolled away. Um, a relic from the stone where John stood when he baptized the Lord. A relic from the stone on which Christ was presented in the temple. A relic from the stone on which Jacob slept. A relic from the stone where Christ fasted. A relic from the stone where Christ prayed. So you can see lots and lots of stones apparently for, for which have durability. And he clearly catalogues um, a lot of, lots of things. But 
in all fairness, I do not see any sort of sense. I cannot make any sense of how he has decided to record this. Obviously, he starts with the most precious, which is uh, the blood of Christ, and then the wood uh, of Christ's cross. But then we find a lot of relics relating to Christ very down uh, the, the, the list, which I, 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 I just really don't understand why. So do any of these relics survive today, or is the list now essentially a collection of vanished objects, like the ones that we've been hearing about from ancient Greece? Yes, I have to say they're a collection of vanished objects, although, uh, according to Christian belief, you can still get uh, wood from Christ's cross, all pilgrims who visit the Holy Land in Jerusalem, uh, they, they, you can actually, uh, you're able to buy wood from Christ's cross. And in fact, I have some at home because a friend of my mother's went to the Holy Land and my mom specifically asked her to bring back wood from the Holy Cross. So yes. You're listening to an audio recording from the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion. Now, so far in this discussion, we've been focusing on literary texts which preserve lists or collections of sacred objects and which allow their readers to experience these objects by proxy. Dr Naomi Howell is a lecturer in medieval studies at the University of Exeter who's been working with another kind of virtual collection. Together with a team at Exeter Cathedral, she's been making 3D scans and prints of some medieval wax votive offerings from the cathedral's archives. These votives were originally placed around the tomb of Bishop Edmund Lacey in the 15th century and they were only rediscovered in the 20th century. I asked Naomi about the history of these fragile objects which are being given new life in the form of digital scans and 3D printed objects. What we know is that they were discovered in 1943 when the cathedral was being inspected for bomb damage. There were a couple of, of women, which for that time is fairly unusual, I think the, the woman who, Radford, was one of the women who published a, a little article on, on the wax votives in the Antiquaries journal, journal in 1949. And then I think there was another female historian, again, just I'm just mentioning it because it's kind of unusual for that time, was responsible for packing them up, for taking care of them, and we still actually have the boxes that she used. So these really, really interesting Look, there's even like a 19th century box that's been lined with sort of uh, fashion articles of the 19th century. And then there's like a, a 1930s cigar box. Um, so th these boxes are themselves of some interest. So there's a whole story to be told after their discovery. But just to think about their survival, between probably Bishop Lacey's death in 1455 and, uh, and the Reformation, so by the 1530s, they were swept away. And the story that we have, I think we have a historical record of um, Dean Simon Haynes, who had uh, these objects swept away. And he, he actually, I think we have on record, on such and such a day, he gave the order to have all this rubbish around Lacey's tomb gotten rid of, right? And so in the Reformation, they were very conscious. I mean, they wouldn't throw away valuable things, right? So anything that was metal, brass, you know, of course, gold, silver, or, or cloth of gold, all these things would have been around the shrine. All that would have been accounted for. So whoever had to sweep these things away couldn't have pocketed them with, with much ease. But these wax votives were just not quite valuable enough 
to be on these uh, account, account books. So whoever, the nameless anonymous person who was in charge of sweeping away these objects and getting rid of the quote-unquote rubbish, decided not to dispose of the wax votives, decided not to melt them down for candles or what, whatever, but um, decided to keep them, to hide them intentionally near the tomb. Um, they were found with a bunch of other sort of shell fragments, which is interesting in itself because Exeter isn't quite on the sea, so might indicate um, other things that pilgrims brought to the shrine. So they hid them as close to the tomb as possible, which would have been on the tiny ledge of the marble screen um, between the, the high altar and the, and the north choir aisle. And the other interesting thing is that we know that that screen was redone under um, the Victorian architect Gilbert Scott. So someone must have found them and replaced them on the new screen at some point as well. And so we owe to this sort of silent respect that was given them by these anonymous people. To, to them, we owe, we owe the survival of these objects. Because we're having them digitized now, we really have access for the first time ever to what it's like to handle these things. Uh, they're so, so delicate and friable that I, I did actually, you know, have handled the, the actual objects, but I can tell you it's a little bit uncanny because you, you, you know, you place it back in its, in its box. I mean, this was back before we had them scanned and you could just feel the wax residue on your hand. So they're very, very delicate. And you can also tell how delicate they are because every time they were catalogued, there were more pieces. So this is a, an early model, but it's life-size. So it gives you a sense of, of scale. So she would have been, she's hollow. So that, that's actually something that you can sense from the 3D model, the incredible lightness. Um, it almost feels like you're not holding anything because they, they made these molds and um, basically just washed them with a thin coat of wax. And that's another reason why they're so, uh, you know, so delicate. To be able to hold something and turn it around and to understand on a physical level how humans interacted with these objects it's just, it's, it's very powerful and evocative and it gets you to think about things. Um, so when you see images of her, you might think about fashion and that is something that people are quite interested in. Um, on the female figure, you can see like the lacing down the front of her dress. You can also see um, the, the plait behind. It's almost like a fishbone. But I, I feel like when I'm holding her and then I set her down and I see her arms in that prayer posture, I just think how moving that would be. You know, as a pilgrim, if you're bringing her, you've, you know, you've, you've bought her at, at some point, um, maybe from a stand outside, a vendor who specializes in, in these. Um, and then you leave her behind on the shrine and she, you've prayed right? You've prayed for, uh, maybe, maybe this represents you yourself, maybe you are this young woman, you can tell she's probably unmarried because of uh, her uncovered head. Um, or maybe this is someone you love, it could be someone who has died, um, or it could be someone who's ill, or we don't know, is this, is this uh, you know, what, what the context is of these prayers, but, but when you hold it, you sort of have to imagine, and you realize all the stories connected with these, all the life histories that sort of intersect with these objects. 
Jodie, it would be really interesting to hear your reactions to what Naomi was just talking about. Uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting about that is that there, she was talking about an inventory of precious objects. And so that you do get a, a textual collection, a virtual collection, in which the wax figures parallel to what general practice was. We imagine they wouldn't be included. Um, but for us today, by virtue of having survived, they become these really important objects and they give us a connection with the past and they make us think about the sacredness of this space and how people interacted with it. And Pausanias does some similar stuff. When he's going to um, different sanctuaries, he will sometimes describe an object and say, and this is still here in my day. And what about Naomi's point about the direct tactile contact with the original wax object, which is very different to looking at it on screen or even handling the 3D printed model? Pausanias' readers couldn't touch the objects that he was talking about, obviously. What difference did that make? The, there is something to be said about direct experience of these objects. Um, and I think that Pausanias is very acutely aware of the difference between a, a mediated, let's say, reading experience of even you know, miraculous objects and actually going and taking a look at them for yourself, maybe even touching themselves. I think he's very well aware of it. And I don't think he is suggesting that one would substitute for the other. In fact, I think the text may be inviting you to go and travel in his footsteps. But what he does try to communicate through text is why these objects are important. And I think these 3D scans will allow you some sense of that, even if it's not the same as holding it in your hands. Angeliki, what did you think? In Christianity, uh, obviously, it, it's not about the value of the object itself, it's about what it represents and where it comes from. So basically, you can see that the blood, the, the little little bottle which has the blood of Christ, uh, it's priceless. While at the same time, is a very cheap material. It's just a piece of glass with a drop of blood. So you have this this. You cannot put a price into into something which is very very cheap. If you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So in Christianity. Uh, obviously, you have big dedication, you have mosaics and wonderful big churches, but the relics themselves, they don't have to be precious material in order to be pricelessly precious. Uh, they have this duality. In fact, uh, the cheaper they are, the more valuable they are. You have like the cloth of uh, Christ uh, when he was born, or things like that. Things that you effectively will be, or the stones, the, the, all the stones that Gunther just, it's just a stone, you know, an everyday stone, yet a priceless everyday stone if that makes any sense. And it, it's worth jumping in at this point um, just to say that we do have this kind of material that, that that's not material that's not expensive material so it's not gold or something like that that's uh, functioning in a similar sort of way in antiquity um, and uh, just to summarize summarize very briefly but there's an account in Athenaios where you've got somebody who uh, goes to the island of Delos to see the cult statue of Leto uh, essentially the the statue is very crude uh, not even carved and the traveler laughs when they see the statue 
because it's not their expectation. They think it is going to be something highly carved or very fine, but actually it's the, quite the opposite. And so the point of this story is, pre is precisely that uh, the, the, visual, the visual aesthetic experience required for understanding this sacred object um, is the language involved is different from if one looks at that as a purely decorative piece in the home or, or other ways of looking at materials. So it's just striking to me that yeah, we don't even even in antiquity we have these cases where objects are very very important and have. Uh, highly significant religious significance, even if they're not necessarily very expensive objects. Uh, in, re in response to um, Jan's example, or his response, shall we say, it makes me think of the, the Xoana, so these um, what, what are thought to be very ancient cult statues that are made of wood. And um, Pausanias talks about one particular um, wooden cult statue in which he says, you know, the style is not very good, but there's something kind of divine about it. Mm. And he also will give a catalog of what he calls authentic Daedalic statues. These are statues made of wood that are kind of rough in terms of the way that they're rendered, but he thinks are actually made by Daedalus, right? The same guy who made the Minotaur's Labyrinth, right? And so it's their great antiquity in this perishable, ultimately, we don't have any of these, uh, material, but even that will last, wood will last a thousand years or more, um, but not precious material and not fine workmanship and nevertheless have something of the divine in it. Just before we finish, may I ask you each to pick out one object from the text or inventory that you've been telling us about, perhaps the one that you'd most like to see and examine? Oh boy, there are so many. Yeah. I mean, I could say that uh, I would like to see the stand on which Croesus's balls were sat because Pausanias says he saw it, but that's gone. I could say I would love to actually see the, Parth uh, the Athena in the Parthenon, which he does describe. But I think what I would most like to see is actually the chest of Kypsilis, because it's a chest in its wood. But Pausanias spends a long time telling us what it looks like. Tons of carved figures. It's got inscriptions on it. He even tells us it's Bustrophodon. It's turning around. And so this is a very special object to him and of a material that's not going to survive to today. And I can only get at it through his texts. So would that I could take a peek. Um, I think for me from the list of Gunther has to be a relic from the table on which Christ ate uh, the supper. Now, why? Because I think it's highly likely that this, in fact, reflected more the, what the contemporary Byzantines thought the table of the Last Supper looked in 33 uh, AD. So basically, I got to examine it because it will tell me more about the audience that worshipped it rather than 33 AD. And I think I find it fascinating how we try to understand the past and how by looking into the past we also try to understand the audience that actually 
had this object, rather what the object itself tells us about the period it was supposed to come from, if that makes any sense. I'm sorry, I made it very convoluted, but that's why I'm fascinated about this relic from the table on which Christ ate the supper. What could it have been? What is it? I mean, was it a plate? What is it? A glass? What? It's just, he says, a relic from the table. Was it the tablecloth? Was it a leg from the table. I'm just fascinated by that. I'm sorry, it sounds very <laughs> trivial, but I'm very, very fascinated with the table. Um, I will stick with the Herodotus account about Croesus. I think I have to. Yes. And But actually, I'm going to pick a relatively less fabulous uh, uh, piece. And this is one of the, one of the, the lower down the list uh, dedicated items. It's a lustral vase, and intriguingly, Herodotus tells us that it's inscribed from the Lacedaemonians. But he tells us, no, I know that this is in fact Creason, and not only that, but he also knows who falsely inscribed this vase with this inscription. But he he rather pompously tells us that he will not include the name of the individual that inscribed this vase. I'd love to see that simple graffito. That brings our discussion to a close. I'd like to thank Dr Jodie Cundy for joining us at the Open University to tell us about her work on immaterial religion and virtual collections in ancient Greece. And thank you too to Jan Haywood, Angeliki Limburapulu and Naomi Howell for sharing their perspectives on this topic. You'll find links to some of the places and objects that we've been talking about today on our website, together with a bibliography. I'm Jessica Hughes. Thank you for listening to this audio from the Varentiesen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion.